welcome to part two of our podcast on board CEO relations. I'm Rita Cepeda and I will be your guide for this session. In part one of this podcast, we focus very directly on one of the major causes for high CEO turnover in the state and the detrimental and costly effect resulting from one of our significant weaknesses in community college governance and administration namely the lack of clear understanding about the difference between the roles and functions of the Board of Trustees and those of the CEO. This podcast takes our discussion a step further. In other words, not just the issues and their causes, but the actual practices and procedures that can lead to successful Board-CEO relations. During our conversation, I will reference several sources and quote directly from a few documents. You don't need to worry about writing these down. After our discussion, you can go directly to the league's website at www.ccleague.org under CEO Strategic Leadership Program. There, you will find a series of slides and the actual script for this podcast. We are now at the point where we are clear about the distinct functions of the Board of Trustees and those of the CEO. We know the rules about who does what, where, and when. We know where to search in the law to understand community college legal mandates. But most important of all, we have acknowledged that if roles and functions are confused, the result can be catastrophic even for well-meaning individuals. So now let's turn to our first topic, communication, the art and the process. I must confess that at the start of my work on this series of podcasts, I drafted an outline of topics in a sequence that made sense. I then changed my mind as I recalled a recent experience in which I conducted a 360 evaluation of a CEO. As a result, I changed the order of the presentation and decided to start our discussion with a big C, communication. My first college degree was in communication disorders. At that time, I was interested in looking at communication from the vantage point of a second language speaker of English. I wanted to understand the genesis of some of the most rudimentary communication obstacles that I and others like me experienced as students. One distinct memory will always stay with me. As I recall my sixth grade teacher, who insisted on speaking to me slowly and loudly, even though she knew I was a new arrival to this country, two weeks to be exact. I looked at her baffled, not so much by the strange language, but what I considered to be her insistence in continuing to speak loudly and slowly, as if by magic, this communication strategy would make me understand. I would say this was a failure in communication writ large. Well, enough of my stories. I only bring it up as an extraordinary illustration of the fact that if you fail to communicate well, nothing else matters. Communication is as much an art as it is a process. What do I mean by that? Both you and I have participated in numerous workshops that focused on leadership skill development. High on the list, we always find communication skills. Sometimes the topic comes under a much larger rubric, people skills. This podcast is not designed to delve deeply into the theories, 
models and rubrics of interpersonal communication. My point here is to emphasize the importance of this subject enough to encourage a more profound self-examination and assessment of your own developmental level as a communicator. We all know that there is no perfect model. It all comes down to finding a good fit and one that makes us comfortable. During one of these workshops, I was required to look into the work of Dr. Don McRae's model described in the art and science behind successful communication interactions. What I liked most was his clear juxtaposition of two concepts, communication as art and communication as a process. And I quote, science depicts how communication works as a process with rules governing where you start according to the situation, and how you proceed to give yourself the best chance for a positive outcome, end quote. Art refers to the skills necessary to navigate the process, not only successfully to produce positive results, but also effectively to enhance, not hurt, the relationship. Quote, Without the skills, knowledge of the communication process is empty. Without knowledge of the process, communication skills leave you blind, end quote. So which is it? Is it an art or is it a process? There's a particular quote from Maya Angelou that says it all. And as all things Angelou, it is at once succinct and beautiful. Quote, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel, end quote. Because communication depends so much on personal attributes, the best advice I can offer is to invest in deep self-examination and training to understand your communication style. A hint here is that it will be directly related to your leadership style. It is true that skills can be learned, but those skills cannot be independent of the person. In other words, the person that you are in your life experiences, including at least your socioeconomic background, gender, and ethnicity. So, if I were to select two qualities of a successful communicator, these would be transparency and authenticity, or as William Shakespeare would say, quote, this above all, to thine own self be true, end quote. Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 3. Now moving on to our next tool for success, let us talk about purpose, mission, vision, and values. This topic centers on scaffolding and structure. No, this is not a discussion about building construction, but it is the best illustration I can think of when it comes to creating a strong organization designed to withstand difficult times and sustain growth. I refer to your college's mission, vision, and value statements. However, it is not enough to come up with statements if these are not made manifest every day in the life of your institution. Your college's mission, vision, and value statements are to precede every piece of communication, be part of every publication, and be reaffirmed by you as CEO each time a major goal or milestone is reached. And now let us take a little time to review the definition of mission, vision, and values. I will follow each definition with an example of the statements developed by the Board of Trustees 
of the San Jose Evergreen Community College District during my tenure as chancellor. Vision and mission statements are often confused, and many use the terms interchangeably. However, they each have a different purpose. The vision statement describes where the college wants to be in the future. The mission statement describes what the organization needs to do to achieve that future vision of itself. A mission statement defines the essence or purpose of the institution, what it stands for, why the college exists, and how it will serve its community. In response, SJECCD developed the following mission statement. As a leading educational institution, the mission of SJECCD is to meet the diverse educational and workforce needs of our community by empowering our students to become agents of socioeconomic change. End quote. Please note the key words included in the statement that define the essence of SJECCD and what it will endeavor to make possible for the students and community in the phrases diverse workforce and agents of socioeconomic change. In other words, why we exist. A vision statement defines what your organization wants to become. A vision should stretch the organization's capabilities and image of itself. It gives shape and direction to the organization's future. Again, in response, SJECCD developed the following mission statement. By the year 2017, SJECCD will become the premier post-secondary education institution in our region. We will do this by advancing opportunity, equity, and social justice through educational excellence. In this instance, the district aims to reach premier educational institution status within its geographic region to advance opportunity, equity, and social justice through educational excellence. I cannot tell you how many times we returned to these words again and again when making a difficult budget, staffing, and even facilities decisions. We delved deeply into the meaning of social justice, and yes, we did have a timeline for 2017 declaring that we were committing to measuring whether we had been true to our vision. A value statement details the qualities that represent the highest priorities and driving forces of the institution, what the institution deeply believes in, and, in fact, some refer to values as the college's code of ethics. In response, SJECCD developed the following value statement. Quote, our district's core values are opportunity, equity, and social justice. Each of these values is incorporated into our strategic planning and is part of the foundational commitment we make to our communities. End quote. In this value statement, we can see the use of scaffolding I mentioned earlier. We as a district restates and reinforce once again key terminology at the heart of our institution's code of ethics by naming opportunity, equity, and social justice as our core values. Well-crafted mission, vision, and value statements can serve as a litmus test for trustees and CEOs. Throughout my career as a CEO, I always ask myself the following, is this decision or action consistent with the vision, mission, and values of our college. 
If the answer is no, then it is time to rethink, redirect, or discard your action. If the answer is yes, then it is time to proceed on solid, ethical, efficient, and effective ground. In either case, this examination provides the rationale necessary to advise the board and enable them to make well-informed decisions. Try it. You'll like it. Subtopic 3. Key Principles of Board Governance There are three publications that I consider foundational to understanding the principles of board governance. The first is the Community College League of California Board and CEO Roles, Different Jobs, Different Tasks, and the Trustee Handbook. The third is Trusteeship 101, published by the American Association of Community College Trustees, ACCT, which identifies a straightforward and succinct list of board governance principles. 1. Act as a unit. 2. Represent the common good. 3. Set policy directions for the colleges. 4. Employ, support, and evaluate the college's chief executive. 5. Define policy standards for college operations. 6. Monitor institutional performance. 7. Create a positive college climate. 8. Support and advocate the interests of the institution. And 9. Lead as a thoughtful, informed team. These principles clearly establish the Board of Trustees as the primary entity charged with legal authority and even moral oversight to advance the institution's future. As elected officials, trustees represent their constituents, set policy direction, and employ the college's chief executive officer. In turn, the CEO's responsibility is to turn that policy into action. In part one of this podcast, we talked about delegation of authority from the board to the CEO in some detail. It is important to note that the act of delegation is in fact an official board policy action that must be formally recorded. Delegation of authority charges the CEO with the implementation of board policy, holding him or her fully accountable for implementation. It also requires the CEO to establish monitoring processes, including measures of accountability. This leads us to the implementation role of the CEO and yet another slippery slope in the process detailed in our next topic. CEO role in understanding the difference between policy and implementation. The role of the CEO is one of policy implementation which can be defined as the process of translating policy into action. The CEO is charged or authorized to identify the necessary resources to implement board policy. This can include necessary funding, staffing, infrastructure, the identification of who is to be involved in their roles and responsibilities. There are three critical aspects of policy implementation. 1. How to differentiate between policy and implementation. 2. Strategic planning to achieve the desired objectives. And 3. Monitoring and accountability. So, now let's proceed with understanding the difference between policy 
and implementation. In part one of this podcast, we mentioned the importance of knowing the rules of the game to prevent unforced errors. At this point in our discussion, nothing is more important than to ensure that we have a clear understanding about the differentiation of function between the policy-making board and the implementation of those policies by the CEO. The simplest way I know to explain this difference is to say that the trustees determine the what and the CEO determines the how. In other words, the trustees indicate what is to be done and the CEO determines how the board's request is to be met. It is worth our while here to underscore that failure to understand the difference between policy and implementation lies at the crux of many board-CEO conflicts. Boards err when they establish policy and then tell the CEO how they want him or her to proceed. Conversely, CEO find themselves in hot water when their implementation plans exceed the parameters of board policy. Let us look at two examples. Example number one. The Board of Trustees has established a policy to reduce the gap in student attainment for underserved students. However, they do not stop at that pronouncement. Instead, the board proceeds to tell the CEO that he or she must move funding from one categorical program to another, begin the process with second language learners, and merge several specially funded categorical programs to achieve the desired goal. Definitely not appropriate. This board statement goes beyond policy because it also tells the CEO how to implement their directive. It is important to know that by telling the CEO what to do and how to do it, the board has in fact negated its ability to hold the CEO accountable. Why? Simply because the board established the what and the how, and if subsequent efforts do not result in success, the CEO cannot be held accountable for failure. After all, he or she did exactly as the board directed. Example number two. Conversely, to use the same illustration, the board has established a policy that bridging the achievement gap for underserved students must be reduced. The CEO believes that focusing on all students is the right approach to achieve the board's directive. Given this belief, he or she proceeds with current curriculum improvement efforts and presents the board with improved outcomes for all students. Here, there is a failure of implementations on several counts. One, the CEO fails to take into account the specific policy target, namely underserved students. Two, imposes his or her philosophy to raise all boats. And three, fails to put in place disaggregated measures of success that will demonstrate to the Board of Trustees that the achievement gap for underserved students has in fact decreased. This is a perfect segue for the next point in our discussion, strategic planning and accountability. At this point, you have been charged by the Board to implement a specific policy directive. You may be tempted to put in place a series of actions to get the job done, 
particularly if it is an area that is near and dear to your heart and you are sure about the steps to be taken. Stop. This is another one of those instances when intuitive responses may lead to failure. In all things, large or small, use your intuition, yes, but never fail to follow a rational process, not only to check your assumptions, but also to provide you with a means to assess existing resources, measure progress, and put in place mid-course corrections where necessary. In other words, strategic planning. In this case, as in others we have discussed, there are numerous models and theories about the strategic planning process. My recommendation is to find one that suits you and your management style. Many experts detail several steps to follow. Four, seven, five, three, it does not matter. We know that regardless of the steps in the strategic process selected, there are key phases to the process. Analysis of the issue, formulation of the approach, implementation, and monitoring. One of the approaches that I found, which is very user-friendly, walks us through a series of seven steps in the form of questions. One, where are you? Sometimes this is also called situational analysis. This step requires you to identify the major drivers of the proposed policy and the resources within the college that support those drivers. Two, what is the vision? What is the most compelling aspect of the policy goal we are to implement? How does it align with the mission, vision, and goal statements of the college? Three, what are the obstacles? What are the barriers to achieve our goal? And how do we adapt our strategies to nullify or overcome these obstacles? Four, what are the resources? What do we have and what do we need? You will also want to bring as much up-to-date information to the table as possible. Five, what is our strategy? Now that we know what the obstacles and resources, fiscal, human, and structural, are, we must follow the best path. What are our tactics? That's number six, by the way. This is the point where you determine who will do what and when. The actual work plan, including timelines. Seven, what will we monitor and measure? After developing the work plan, this step in the process requires the identification of measurable objectives, including periodic monitoring. This final step is invaluable because it allows us to undertake midpoint corrections if necessary. No one can predict the future with certainty, and even the best laid plans run into unforeseen circumstances. Monitoring and measuring the right things are the only way to keep you on track and on time. And finally, we get to the point known in the theory of management as the proof is in the pudding. No, I'm kidding. We're talking now about accountability. One of the hobbies that I have is collecting great quotes. I'm sure that most of us have heard the phrase, quote, with great power comes great responsibility. One of my daughters referred to this as the Peter Parker principle from Spider-Man fame. And she's right. However, I would like to attribute this phrase to more scholarly sources since it has been used by President Obama and the U.S. Supreme Court. 
There is yet an even higher source for this mantra because it most likely had its origin in the Bible, namely Luke 12, that reads as follows, quote, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. End quote. I never imagined I would use biblical sources to discuss delegation of authority, strategic planning, and accountability. But here we are. It so happens that biblical scholars trying to explain Luke 12.48 imply that the principle of stewardship has a direct relationship to fiscal stewardship and, as we all know, stewardship of knowledge and understanding is a common theme in the Bible. I wish to emphasize, however, that the measure of stewardship is accountability. In other words, full accountability for implementing the policy with which the Board of Trustees has charged you. This prospect of responsibility, while enormous, can be achieved successfully if we return to the parameters discussed earlier. The Board makes policy and the CEO implements Board policy. Both policy and implementation must be undertaken within the limits of the mission, vision, and values adopted by the Board. Clear planning and resource allocation must be identified and measures of accountability to quantify success must be put in place. Finally, it is these accountability measures that make it possible for the Board to exercise its monitoring responsibility. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. The Community College League looks forward to providing you with subsequent presentations designed to help you succeed. Mm-hmm.